And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. The chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate asked again, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, what, why, what evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts. You may be seated. To my knowledge, it's not published anywhere, but there is a list of words that are, I think, commonly treated as within the Christian world and within churches as kind of politically incorrect. They're words that are frequently sidestepped entirely, or, you know, if you just can't avoid having to use the word then you use them sparingly. And even when you do use them, some people even get a little creative with how they're applied. These words include, I mean, the list is longer, but at least what I'm thinking is these words include, you know, sovereignty, election, predestination, providence, all of those types of concepts. And you know, those terms, those specific words actually did not originate in the Reformation. Turns out they're actually directly from Scripture themselves, much to the displeasure of, I think, some Christians. And one of the consequences of this inconsistency with these terms and with these concepts is that sometimes there is a misjudgment or a mischaracterization that's made by those that are disinclined to use those words um, about those that are unafraid to use them. I'll, fr I'll frame it like this. Those that appear to have a um, habit of deferring to human logic and human reasoning and to kind of uh, lean on a Amer good American sense of fairness, um, find themselves categorizing those that are unintimidated by those words as anti-free will. They kind of put them in this box where it's like, well, those group of people, 
don't really believe in free will. So what they've done by doing that is they've created this either-or fallacy where, you know, there are just the two options. Either you believe that mankind has a free will or you believe in kind of the face value definitions of things like election and predestination and, you know, God's sovereignty and providence, which then is to imply that that group, those people, those folks, don't really believe in mankind having a free will. Now, what makes this assumption a logical fallacy is that it oversimplifies the argument. The truth is that we who are unafraid of those terms, as they are provided to us in Scripture, we affirm what it says in our confession of faith, which is, and I'll quote here, God has endued the will of man with the natural liberty and power of acting upon choice that is neither forced nor by necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. This is part of the confession that we hold to. So that is to say that this church believes that man has a free will. We confess that to be true. And that applies directly to the passage that we're looking at today in this first 15 verses of Mark. Mark articulates for us four different characters that clearly exercise their freedom of the will. Those four four characters involve the chief priests, Pilate, the crowd, and lastly, Jesus. And when I say each individual character is exercising their free will, I mean even those within the group of chief priests, each individual that makes up the chief priests, and when it says the crowd, each individual that actually makes up the crowd. And all of the events that we read about in the first 15 verses of chapter 15 took place precisely within the providential plan of our sovereign God, yet not one time at any point was one of them forced into sin by God or even tempted to sin by God. We know from James chapter 1 that God does not tempt anyone and that any temptation one experiences is the result of his own desire. That desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And we see this take place in this series of verses. Our first example of this freedom of the will at work is with these folks, the scheming, duplicitous tool of the devil himself, the chief priests. Now, look with me in Mark chapter 15 and verse 1, and you'll notice that the chief priests are not the only ones listed here. It says the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. So, yes, these other folks are included with the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, and the whole council, but make no mistake, it's actually the chief priests that are driving the bus. And there are two ways that this is evident. The first is... um, It's a way that we use language. There's something that Mark does in the way that he writes it that's actually similar to the way that we speak as well. And when you just read through, at first 
blush, it you, you don't really notice it. But once it's pointed out, I think that it should become obvious to you. So when it says that it's the chief priest that held consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, it almost gives that impression that they're all just kind of coming together, chief priests, and they happen to be with the elders, scribes, and the, and the whole uh, council. But we do something with speech um, where when we use the word with, sometimes it can mean that one particular group is the one that's at the wheel and the others are supplementary to that, and that's what we have here. If I were to tell you that I consulted with three doctors, I think you would understand that while the doctors themselves are certainly engaged during, during these visits and they're a participant in what's going on, that I'm the one that was consulting with each of them. That's just the way that we talk to each other. And we see this actually in a previous example in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, where when Jesus is in the synagogue and he heals the man with the withered hand, and then um, it, this all takes place in front of the Pharisees. And then we read in Mark 3, 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. It is the Pharisees that took the initiative and went out, and it was the Pharisees that held counsel with the Herodians to calculate how to destroy Jesus. So, in a similar way, what we have here is it's actually the chief priests that are taking the lead in this regard, and they, help, they help hold a consultation with the elders, scribes, and the whole council. So remember that after his arrest, that Jesus was brought to the leader of that particular group, to the high priest. And after finding Jesus guilty in their mock trial, and they were throwing at him the, the, uh, the, the false charges using um, false witnesses, now the chief priests have taken the lead. So the cock is crowed, morning is come, and they've taken the cue from their leader in holding this consultation with the Sanhedrin. Now, lest you think that I'm kind of splitting hairs here, look at this. Here's the second way that we know that the chief priests are driving the agenda. If you look at verses 3, verse, verse 10, and verse 11, there's only one group that's mentioned. In Mark 15, 3, it says, And the chief priests accused him of many things. Then in verse 10, it says, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Then verse 11, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him released, uh, to have him released for them Barabbas instead. So certainly the whole council was involved in the binding, in the leading away, in the delivering over of Jesus to Pilate. Earlier, they all together were telling, uh, had come to the conclusion that he was deserving of death. They were all participating in spitting on him and covering his face and striking him. There's no account here at any point of one of them, uh, you know, lodging a dissenting opinion. Nobody said, hey, I don't think this is the right thing to do. So for sure, they're there as a group. And it's mentioned multiple times that it's the whole council that it's there. But I think that it's noteworthy that the chief priests took the lead. 
And I'll say again that all of this fell perfectly within God's providential plan, the providence of a sovereign, electing father, and it's consistent with the declarations of the prophets that preceded it. So all of these things are falling exactly and perfectly in line with everything that God had intended, and yet God did not cause them, did not cause the chief priest to do it. We know that it was the deadly fruit of their own desires. It was the deadly fruit of their own free will. And we can see that in verse 10 when it says, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. So basically we can take that sin that's being described by the chief priests and plug it back into that verse out of James chapter 1 and say, envy after it was conceived gave birth to sin that was growing towards death. The chief priests were doing exactly what they wanted to do. Our second example of this freedom of the will is Pilate. We know that the trial, so-called trial, that the Sanhedrin had prior to what's taking place now before Pilate had the predetermined goal of trying to produce a... um, produce a charge that was worthy of Roman capital punishment. And through a manipulation of words, they were able to produce a twisted form of high treason against the emperor. And with that in place then, these chief priests delivered Jesus over to the, to, to the governor at first light. Now it's interesting to think this through here, that they were delivering him over at first light because the uh, custom at that particular time was that the Roman rulers would uh, take care of their required business at dawn because by mid-morning they wanted to get to leisure. The plan was, okay, I'll do what I have to do for a few hours, and then the rest of the day they coast. And the, uh, the chief priests knew this. They knew that that was the plan, And they had calculated that they needed to conclude their portion of all of this and to be at Pilate's palace in time for him to be there at dawn. They needed to get to the head of the line when Pilate came out. Now, we don't know from reading the account in Mark exactly when the charge is submitted to Pilate. It doesn't say that. But what we can figure out is that right there in that space between verses 1 and 2 is where it it must have taken place. In verse 1, he's handed over. It says, The chief priests held a consultation, scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him over to Pilate. And then by verse 2, it already says, And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He goes directly to the, uh, the charge that's been given. Now, Mark's account of this interrogation, this exchange that takes place between Pilate and Jesus is an abbreviated account. It's a little shorter than the other gospel accounts of this same thing, but this is what we can do in Mark's account is we certainly can see the thought process. So if you look here at verse 4, we can see that Pilate is amazed that Jesus does not refute the charges. Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. And then in verse 5, he is amazed 
yet again, where it says Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. And he is amazed again because Jesus, it's become obvious at this point that these are baseless charges and Jesus doesn't appear to be doing anything to stand up for himself. And if Pilate can see that there's nothing to these charges and Jesus is not speaking up for himself, it results in him being amazed. And then by verse 10, there's confirmation that Pilate actually knows that the charges have been trumped up due to the chief priest's envy. And then in verse 14, he even goes on the record to demonstrate that he knew this. Verse 14 reads, And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? After receiving the formal charge from the chief priests, and hearing the additional charges of the chief priests as they piled them on, and after interrogating himself, he goes on the record to say, what has he done? Now, I'd say it's likely that any knowledge that you have of Pilate probably comes directly from Scripture. I don't know if you've done any additional study about who Pilate was, but I can tell you um, that despite the fact that in Scripture, if you were to limit your knowledge of Pilate to Scripture, you might come to the conclusion that he's some kind of a pushover, and that that's why this all played out the way that it did. But actually, there are multiple historians that have documented his cold cruelty, and despite the impression that we get in the Gospels, uh, there are a number of accounts that demonstrate that he is not a soft-minded, weak-willed snowflake. There are historical accounts that show prior to this event with Jesus and after this event with Jesus that he fiercely enforced obedience. So what we know from that then is it's not the fact that the chief priests were applying the pressure that Pilate did what he did. So if it isn't the chief priests applying pressure and piling on all of these accusations that kind of forced Pilate's hand, it begs the question, what could cause a headstrong ruler that knew that this man that was sitting in front of him was innocent, what could cause him to sentence that man to death? And the short answer is pride. Pilate overestimated his own ability to to manipulate the crowd. See, three different times we see Pilate basically lobby for Jesus in verse 9, in verse 12, and in verse 14. In all three of those places, um, Pilate essentially tries to get Jesus off the hook. And specifically in verse 9 it says, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Of course, see, he's saying it's for them, but we know in reality it's completely for himself. But the problem is he made a tactical error. His heart is revealed in verse 15, where it says, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd. Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd. Mark is giving us, in this account, the motivation 
of Pilate himself. So Pilate, instead of ruling justly, as he had the option to do, tried to manipulate the crowd by manufacturing a pardon. See, he didn't want to make the decision and to just pardon him, even though that was the legitimate, just, and right thing to do, even though he knew that's the out, he knew though that that was the outcome that should take place. So instead of ruling justly, he decided that he would try to manipulate the crowd to get to the same ending. And instead, what we see is, as one commentator put it, the governor is governed. And so we see that Pilate's desire is on display here in verse 15, wishing to satisfy the crowd. And yet all of this happens within the perfect, sovereign, providential will of an electing and predestinating God. And without any interference by God, Pilate did exactly what he wanted to do. To use the language of James, we could plug Pilate's sin right in there. Pride and selfishness, after it was conceived, gave birth to sin and was growing toward death. The third example of this freedom of the will is the crowd. They knew that it was the custom during the Passover feast for the governor to release one convicted criminal of their choosing. That was already in place. They knew that this is how things played out. And the crowd was familiar with the practice, and they also knew the fact that they, also, that they had a small window to get it done. They also knew that, okay, the governor, Pilate, is going to be there first thing in the morning, and we only have a little bit of time if we're going to make this happen. So they all appear at first light because they had a favorite that they wanted to be released. See, that crowd that showed up there wanted Barabbas before he was ever offered by Pilate. Barabbas was a notorious robber and murderer. In fact, he was imprisoned for insurrection. It's curious, if you look at verse 7 there, it says, And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection. It's, it's uh, curious that it's referred to as the insurrection because the reader at that particular time would have known what that insurrection was. This is something that was noteworthy. This was a rebellion by the Jews against the Roman government. And whatever that rebellion was, it was well known and Barabbas had served in it as a kind of freedom fighter for the Jews. And this crowd had come to seek his release. So, these are not the pilgrims that Jesus picked up along the way in his Galilean ministry. These are not the people that were following him as he walked towards Jerusalem. These are not the same people that were throwing down palm leaves and singing Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. These are politically minded local Jews that are more concerned about throwing off the burden of Roman rule. They were more concerned about a political coup to shake off Roman authority. And here's how we know that. If you look at verses 6 and 7, what those verses provide is background. Those verses give us the background of two things. They tell us first that is that about the custom itself. 
that releasing a convicted criminal, and then it also tells us about the identity of Barabbas. So those pieces are already in place in verses 6 and 7, and it's after that that you read what takes place in verse 8. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. You see how this is rolling out. You have the feast where he gives them a convicted criminal. Also, we have this guy, Barabbas. And then on the heels of that now, we have introduced for us in verse 8, the crowd that, began, that came up and began to ask Pilate for him to carry this out. So they showed up with the expectation to ask for Barabbas, to ask for their freedom fighter. Now, Pilate himself is no dummy. But his miscalculation was not realizing who his audience was. So, yes, they were Jews. This crowd that showed up, yes, they were Jews, but they were not those pilgrims that were following Jesus. So when he offered Jesus up for amnesty, he was offering up Jesus really to the wrong people, and the outcome was certainly much different than what he was expecting. These people were rebels that wanted their mercenary back. And this makes a lot of sense because now this, um, you can see how easy it would be then for the chief priests to be able to incite them to ask for Barabbas. That's who they came to get to begin with. And second, to call for the crucifixion of Jesus. If that's what they were, if that's the kind of people that are there and that's the purpose that they're there, then it would be much easier to incite them uh, to ask for Barabbas and to call for Jesus' crucifixion. Now, of course, the irony runs deep here. Barabbas is an, infamous, is an infamous criminal that is legitimately imprisoned for robbery and murder. He's involved with insurrection against Rome. And Jesus, what is he famous for? He's famous for healing the sick, for casting out demons, for proclaiming the truth for setting captives free, and now he's wrongly accused for the charge of insurrection against Rome. So the accusers trumped up the charge due to envy. The corrupt judge, despite knowing that Jesus was, um, was innocent, caved out of pride and self-preservation, and now we have this crowd, and it's their bloodlust that is evident because they were willing to choose their murdering freedom fighter over an innocent man and to feed their bloodlust by just sending Jesus, the innocent one, to a crucifixion. And there's another layer of, of irony really here, kind of two-sided, two-sided irony. If you look at verse 6, Mark 15, verse 6, where it says that... Now at the feast, he uh, used to release for them one prisoner. In the original language, that word for release is not just the act of taking off the restraints and setting him free. The idea of releasing the prisoner, that's the same word that's used for acquitting him of a crime. And then the other side of that is where in that same verse it says, for whom they asked, that's also the same original word for interceding for someone. So, that means that this verse could read, now at the feast, Pilate used to acquit for the crowd one criminal for whom they interceded. 
this crowd in their bloodlust interceded for the guilty so that that reprobate might be acquitted of his legitimate crime. And then they called for the guilt and brutal execution of the innocent one. I would tell you again, they all did this in the perfect plan, in co- consistent with God's sovereign and providential plan, and yet the crowd did exactly what they wanted to do. To use the language of James, anger and bloodlust after it was conceived gave birth to sin that was growing towards death. Our last example is the freedom of will that is exercised by Jesus. I mentioned that in the interrogation uh, that's recorded in Mark, it's kind of short compared to some of the other accounts. Jesus' answer in verse 2, I mean, if this is the only account that you read, almost seems a little bit cryptic. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, you have said so. And it kind of leaves you wondering, okay, like what's the tone of voice or the body language there? What is, what is you have said so seem, uh, what, what did he mean by that? Well, I think it's helpful here if we add a little bit of color from this same account as it's given in John. So in John 18, starting at verse 33, so this is that same interrogation. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered him, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of, from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. So in reading this, we see a similar pattern to what had taken place when Jesus was sitting with the Sanhedrin. And they were throwing those false accusations at Jesus. Remember, he just remained silent until they asked a very straightforward question that had to do with his identity. Well, now here we have Jesus again, who is sitting in front of Pilate, his interrogator, in front of the the judge, the governor, basically, of what's taking place as it relates to this, uh, this criminal charge of high treason. And Jesus does answer him when he asks a straightforward question, which is, are you the king of the Jews? And two times in John's account, we see that that Jesus responds very plainly to him that his kingdom is not of this world. He's telling Pilate that he is not rebelling against Roman rule. But what does Pilate do? Pilate does the same thing that the Pharisees did, which was to fail to listen to Jesus' answer the way that he was explaining it, instead oversimplified it, and just says at the end of Jesus's clear explanation that I am not here to overthrow the Roman government. My kingdom is not of this world. 
My people would have fought for me if that's what I was trying to do. So he's saying plainly that that's not what he's doing. And what was Pilate's response? Oh, so you are a king. It completely misses the point. And so now with that in view, with kind of that added color that we get from John, we can see that Jesus's explanation or Jesus's reply to um, the way that Mark records it to Pilate's question of, so you are a king, it basically gives the tone that Jesus is being, I, I don't know, I would, I would say glib. He recognized the oversimplification. He's like, you've said so. Sure. Yeah, yes. Yes. You want to simplify, you know, you want to bring it all the way down to that? The answer is yes. So Jesus has said enough at this point that a righteous judge and a righteous governor could acquit him. He gave him what he needed to be acquitted of the crime if that was what he wanted to do. But he's not talking to a righteous judge. He's not talking to a legitimate and righteous governor. And so what we see in this circumstance is that in accordance with God's predetermined and sovereign will, Jesus also exercised his freedom of his will. Because Jesus once told Peter, you know, that he could appeal to the Father. And at once, more than 12 legions of angels would be sent. But instead, he chose to fulfill the scriptures. While he was tempted in every way, just as we are, so you could say, as he was tempted in every way, just as the chief priests were, just as Pilate was, just as the crowd was, he did not sin. Instead, he did exactly what he wanted to do, which was to obey the Father. He chose obedience. So here's the truth about free will. You have the power of acting upon choice that is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. God is not forcing you to sin. But without God intervening, you don't and you won't for one single solitary second choose to please God and to obey him. You cannot save yourself. You cannot inch your way any closer to salvation. You know, the at least two of the metaphors that I've heard over and over again that are just foolishness is the idea of, you know, that God's throwing a life, you know, one of those life-saving rings and all you have to do is reach out and you can be saved. Or God is providing this medication and all you have to do is sit up and take the medication and then you will be saved. But the fact of the matter is a, de- a dead person doesn't reach out for a life-saving ring. A dead person doesn't sit up and take a life-saving medication. Romans 3 says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There is no wiggle room in there. Now, with that truth in play, there are only one of two options. It's one or the other. And this is not an either or fallacy. This is legitimate. 
the first response that you can have to that truth is you don't believe it. Can't be true. Or, you know, some version of, okay, well, if it is true, um, you just don't think you're that bad. You think that you have something to offer this holy God. You believe that you're smart enough, that you're good enough, you're educated enough, you're wealthy enough, you've done enough good things that you think you can stack up. You've fill in the blank enough. And so you'll be just fine. If that day comes, if that day rolls around, if it's true, I'm going to be okay. You believe that if what you have to offer that God isn't good enough, well then, man, that God is just mean. He's the one that's got a problem. His judgment is harsh and unfair. And so as a result, fine, you don't want any part of it. In this case, your free will is going to result in eternal judgment. There's no one else to blame. No one else to blame, least of all the God that is telling you how to be saved. So the second way, the other way that a person could respond to that truth is that it is weighing on you. You recognize that you cannot save yourself. You acknowledge that you cannot remove the stain of your sin and that you do need a savior. Well, there's great news. Because while you are exercising your free will, that does nothing more than fill in the blanks for why you deserve God's judgment. God has also exercised his free will. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There is no need to clean yourself up first. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. There is no exercise of any will that will take away guilt outside of what God gives. Jesus, in his innocence and through his obedience, suffered and died so that we could be made holy before God's judgment seat. When you repent of your sins, he intercedes for you And you, the notorious criminal, is acquitted of all the charges. We cannot intercede for ourselves. Only Christ can intercede for us. So you have to throw yourself at his mercy. For the believers that have done this, that are living this life, that are committed to this, I have two things for you. I have an encouragement and an admonishment when we think about this whole exercising of the, of the will and the free will kind of thing. And the first one comes from Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. The encouragement that I would offer you is that you are free. Colossians 1 13 and 14 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then in John chapter 8, verses 34 to 36 as well. Truly, 
Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Do you realize this? If you are a child of God, you are free. You are free from the bondage of sin. You have been transferred into the kingdom of Jesus, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. We don't ever get to say, I can't help it. We don't ever get to say, I do it just because that's who I am, because that's not who you are. The Son has set you free, so you are free indeed. And then here is the admonishment. Since you have been acquitted of your sins, what will you do with your freedom? I used to work in a prison for a number of years, a long time ago. Feels like a previous life. But I met men that spent decades incarcerated. And then along comes one day where they're going to be set free. And, I mean, if you knew somebody that had been in prison for 25 years and that was about to be set free, what is the natural question that you're going to ask that man or that, that's kind of in there? You just want to say, so what are you going to do with your freedom? Like, what are you going to do with that? And I believe that that is a question that we can ask when we look at what's taking place here is because since you have been acquitted of your sins, what will you do with your freedom? Even the best works and the most noble exercise of free will by an unbeliever are not done by a purified heart. But the flip side of that is that the believer, even if your obedience is done in weakness, even though it's flawed, we know that in obedience to God, we can actually please him. You are able to please God if you are one of his children. I'm going to read you one more portion of scripture, which is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It doesn't say to work toward your salvation. It doesn't say to work for your salvation. It says to work out your salvation. You have already been saved, so it's your responsibility to put that into action. You have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ, and so it is our responsibility to obey God's word in fear and trembling because we have been enabled to to do it. You have been given a gift by God. You have been set free, so what will you do with that freedom, because you have the freedom of the will to obey God and to please him. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ, 
and that you have empowered us with the ability to obey you and to please you with our obedience. Lord, help us not to identify with the previous life, with the former life, but instead with our identity that we have right now so that you might be pleased in your children. In Christ's name, amen.